0: cinema sins has a fan club it's called the sin club and members get all sorts of things like early episodes bonus videos merch discounts and even monthly bonus podcasts membership starts at three dollars a month and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash cinema
1: yeah well and it's like susan his widow is like bearing her soul to me and it's like oh yeah go ahead and screw that up see how that goes like yeah you
2: know, no kidding <laughs> oh god Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins.
0: Alright, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Barrett Scher from CinemaSins. Hello! And Jonathan Watkins from CinemaSins. Hello, hello. And today we have a very special guest. It's director Tyler Norwood, who Yay! directed the documentary "Robin's <laughs> Wish," which is about Robin Williams and his death. And uh, you know, um, right off the bat, the thing that that uh, immediately—I don't know—there there was there was a part of this documentary that sort of made me angry, and that is the media part of it. Um, the the media immediately is like well what could it possibly have been it must have been something and they start going into his past and they start you know they they hang outside the house and everything uh one of the things that i'm glad about this documentary is that it it uh it sort of uh not sort of, it It explains what was going on with Robin Williams to a T, which is something that I did not know before I watched this documentary. Mm. And so, um, I'm glad that you, you did something like you did something like this. And uh, so what was it that the media was saying when they, when the, when Robin Williams, uh, was reported
1: dead? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, Robin Williams never got a diagnosis for this thing called Lewy body dementia that was actually the thing that really took him from this world. I'm sure we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that that didn't come out until his autopsy report, which was three months later. So unfortunately, what happens in the media is they start saying, you know, well, let's look back at his catalog of things, right? Like. Well, he had a divorce. That probably could have been a money issue. Uh, he had substance abuse issues in the past. Right. He was in the hotel when uh, Jim Belushi <laughs> went over. Right. Like the idea that yeah. like okay, maybe these things were coming back to haunt him. Maybe that's what we're looking at. And you have sort of people just like guessing, really, like really guessing there was there was no evidence for any of the things they were saying. But it's you know, you got to say something when Robin dies and that vacuum creates a lot of room for creativity, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's the the thing, right? Because I, I mean, I don't think I ever like got any anything in my head what was defi- that was definitive or anything. But I heard all that stuff when this first happened. And, you know, you shrug and you go, well, that's typical. It's Hollywood. You know, that's what happens. And you forget all about it. And then you find out years later. That oh, all of that stuff that was that's probably still festering around in
1: people's heads was complete and total nonsense.
0: That's um, a huge
1: point. I mean, just to jump in on that, like one of the things that we were doing for this film because originally this was going to release in theaters pre-COVID, uh, yeah. we had 600 theaters signed up to release this movie. we were so excited. We were reaching out to comedians who are kind of hot nowadays and and saying like you know young up and coming like people like who are hot on Instagram, right? And so we're talking to those comedians and they're like. I love Robin Williams and I'm so sad that he got depressed and killed himself. And it was like, no. whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. whoa. Like, and so yeah. I'm in these things where we're just trying to grab like a fun bite from them about what they loved about Robin. And then it would turn into these like 30, 40 minute Zoom calls where I'd be kind of like walking them through the, and by the end they'd be like, oh my God. And we actually were going to do a really cool, um, at the improv in LA, we were going to do a screening just for comedians because the comedians we were talking to are like, I'm bringing four of my friends because there's this really mm. corrosive narrative in comedy, which is the sad clown, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the idea that somebody could be so amazing and bring us so much joy, but in their private life, you know, they're just not getting it, it. That, that same joy isn't getting into them. And, and the, the idea that Robin was put in that bucket, it was really cathartic for these comedians to say, if we can take somebody out of that, if we can, if we can weaken that narrative that people try and put on You know comedians who are struggling that would be a huge accomplishment and so they there actually was like a really great little groundswell there and it gave me a lot of sense of like you know what this film maybe will mean to people right like that just this that's one angle that the comedians who he really cared about it and like was it was in the brotherhood sisterhood. you know he was in that group and the idea that that they could really unpack this and look at him you know a lot of the comedians i talked to are like this is why i got into comedy like the way that robin williams looked on stage was the most fun looking thing i'd ever seen mm-hmm. and i wanted to try and get as close as that as i could and so the idea that like that that person they were trying to be maybe had this intense dark side that like you know he couldn't handle and ended up ending his life that was a real weight for those people and so the yeah. idea that in in just giving them like you know 10 minutes of explanation they can go oh so he really was Robin Williams and he was fantastic and he, and it's like, yes, yes, yes. And just to see them kind of go like kind of bounding out of the zoom call to tell others was like such a cool thing.
0: Yeah. This is a documentary. Uh, uh, definitely doesn't just focus on his death. It focuses on aspects of his life that we, we didn't really, I don't think anybody really registered that people weren't who weren't close to him uh, mm-hmm. really knew um, the, the, the thing that I took out of this was just how, uh, how, uh, he, like giving of his time he was for hmm. to, uh, all, I mean, not, I mean, the, the going to, uh, injured soldiers, uh, at, you know, you know, in the, in the hospitals and everything, that's one thing, but it was just, it was everybody. It was, it was, he would just give his time. He loved people.
1: Yeah, mm. there wasn't even room in the uh, in the movie to get to even half the stuff. I mean, the stuff he did for the homeless, right? Mm. Like Robin Williams was one of the only actors in Hollywood, I think you know, just the idea that he championed the cause of homelessness and didn't see them as any different. And that when he played that role in the Fisher King of someone who was homeless, like he really put on that mantle and bringing that, that community dignity. And he, he always mandated that any movie he was on, that there would be homeless people brought onto the production and like given Hmm. jobs and skills. And then like, he just went out of his way over and over and over again. And even at the end of his life, he never stopped doing that. He was doing voiceover for a USO documentary, like way, way past when he should have been able to do that. Mm. And it's just the idea that he he the thing that I found about Robin Williams during the making of this film is that if if I loved Robin Williams, Robin, the guy behind all that work was way, way more powerful. And that in some ways, that electric, crazy, like, you know, souped up sports car of a brain that he had was really just a delivery vehicle for this guy's heart. That this guy had like the biggest heart and that his friends, his colleagues, everybody reported that like uniformly as I was doing these interviews was really, um, it was a powerful experience for me as a fan.
0: Yeah. um, So, and, and, you know, his late wife, Susan Schneider, she tried, I mean, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who did get this message that. Uh, that, you know, his death wasn't what was originally reported and everything. She got on all the morning talk shows. That just goes to show how little reach though. Uh, a lot of these shows have, uh, Mm. because it's not like it started trending on Twitter or anything like that, that, you know, Hey, that original thing was wrong. And, uh, you know, that, that was what was bizarre to me watching it. I was like sitting there going, Oh, she did a media blitz, but I didn't, I didn't see any of this.
3: Yeah, I was the same way. I, I didn't recall any of that. Um, I, I feel like I had heard something about this, maybe just offhand, but I definitely never. Yeah, like Chris was saying, it was never something that seemed to be highlighted anywhere on social media or anywhere. You know, we would see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, did
2: uh, do, uh, Tyler? Did Susan contact you uh, to get to help get this message out, or was this a project that you were interested in at the mm-hmm. beginning? I think you said you were kind of a quote unquote, super fan of Robin Williams. But uh, how did this kind of come to be?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think anybody who, you know, I'm 36. So when I was five, it was Hook. When I was seven, it was Jumanji. When I was nine, it was like Goodwill hunting, you know, it just like <laughs> kept being in my life. And so I, I think nobody can not be a fan if, if you're in that age range. Um, but more than that, so, so Susan, his widow, reached out to me and um through a through a, a common friend and the friend was like hey like robin williams widow is going to be calling you about a movie that she wants to do and i was like okay wow. this is always a fun day um so i'm like okay like what's this going to be about and she gets on the phone and she goes hey do you want to make a movie about Louie body dementia like full stop and i was mm. like
2: <laughs> no
1: i don't want to do that at all Correct. and i was like, um you know and then i kind of had to like pull it all back all my dreams of what we were going to like you know and i was like you know susan let, let me just like because I don't know where this is coming from. I, I am a fan of Robin. I've never heard this Louis body dementia thing before. Um, so what I, what I would ask you uh, is it's going to be two to three years uh, turned out to be like three and a half before we're going to be sitting in a theater watching this movie. Like what mm. is going to sustain you? Cause dry science documentary is not my bag. Right. Mm. And she <laughs> like, well, actually, you know, it, it's something that me and Robin really struggled with. And I was like, please tell me more. And she then she proceeded to tell me all these stories about what they went through that I'd never heard. Right? Yeah. And I was like, if you'll do that, if you'll go there, um, that's a movie I'll make. Because I immediately, as the gears are turning, realize, okay, so we're going to untell a story. Because I, like you guys, was like... I had I had I I didn't know what exactly happened, but I assumed it had something to do with him just having a really bad night for some reason and like not being able to go forward. And Mm -hmm. the idea that this was a complete retelling of that was like, wow, like not only do I have to be a good filmmaker, but I better put my journalist hat on really tight because now uh, retelling a story. That's like a that's a big, big hurdle to try and jump over, especially since, you know, we could see from evidence that, you know, if you just go out there and tell people the truth without some real sort of you know direction and slickness and point of view and if like if you can't figure out some way to package that truth in a way that breaks through what people already think they know if they think they've already heard this before you're gonna fall on deaf ears right because she went out there and tried that and it didn't really do anything because people are like oh well now which is it you know is it this or is it that you know i I gotta go to work right yeah Yeah. (laughs) uh, but like So if we were going to break through that, um, it was going to take it was going to take not only me doing my best film work, but also me doing the best journalistic work I'd ever done. And that that became a challenge I was really excited to take on because it's like, oh, and if I do a good job, then Robin Williams legacy gets a little bit of shine. Like, fantastic.
0: Mm -hmm. This is the first that a lot of people are going to hear of Louis body dementia Um, and uh, what I can tell it gets misdiagnosed as Parkinson's most of the time. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, is that the reason why it's so hard to detect?
1: Yeah, exactly. So the way you can think about it is when, when people think like Michael J Fox, right, you have, you have the shaky hand Parkinson's like, cause Michael J Fox is is still pretty with it, right? Like mm-hmm. if he, if he shows with his Parkinson's and you're kind of like, how does, how does that equate to something that like ruins someone's ability to even put sentences together or like, and having all these. So basically the way that Parkinson's works is you start with these physical symptoms and it ends with you having these horrible hallucinations, like an inability to sleep that basically drives you crazy. Cause, right, like that's a torture technique, not being able to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then the concept that you like lose all your faculties, like deep inside the brain. So your ability to form sentences, your ability to have constructive thought, right? So you have these little moments where you're yourself, but you really become farther and farther from that until you ultimately like your nervous system shuts down and you die. That's Parkinson's right? The crazy thing is that Lewy body dementia just starts from the other side. So you still have the same outcome where your nervous system shuts down. But you start with the with the dementia symptoms, you start with the hallucinations, you start with the lack of sleep, you start with the inability to produce sentences. So by the time Robin gets his Parkinson's diagnosis at the end of his life, he's already traveled through the worst, worst parts, right? So yeah, He's now at the point where, oh, his arm his, he would he would gladly have his arm shake a little bit if he could if he could get rid of the months and months of torture he's just been through. And so that's that's how you can think about it. So you get a Parkinson's diagnosis at the end of Lewy body dementia uh, in in Parkinson's. You essentially will get, you know, you could get a Lewy body dementia uh, thing at the end of that. But mostly it's just, you know, one train going one way, one train going the other way. They both are incurable and end in death.
0: Yeah, that was my that was my question that I kept uh, kept rolling through my head is if if Lewy body is often confused with Parkinson's, uh, you know, why aren't doctors going to uh, do the test for Lewy body while they're at it? But apparently you have to get to this stage to even get the Lewy body dementia um, diagnosis, which is uh,
1: it's frightening. It's really frightening. Um, And it is really hard to diagnose, right? Like we were doing a um, a little like thing with this for another promotional thing. And somebody was like, yeah, but I saw all those little like slides with the little dots and stuff that were they were clearly Lewy body dementia. How come nobody saw that? And it's like, well, that part requires taking the brain out of the head.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: MRI, MRI doesn't catch this, right? There's very specific things that you kind of have to be looking for. And so one of the ways that Susan describes it is, you know, they didn't get the best help and they didn't get the worst help, but like there's 1.4 million people that get diagnosed with this every year. Right. Ted Turner has this, right. I talked to his daughter. It's like something that just that diagnosis piece is such a healing factor. If you can get there, if you can get to the point where you find the right doctor who's looking for this in a, in a kind of like holistic way, um, then you can have these outcomes that are better, where you at least know that this isn't you, right? Like Sean Levy, the director of the Night at the Museum, three films, mm-hmm. uh, the franchise. And on the third one, he said he's he's reporting Robin Williams not being Robin Williams, right? He's like, I'm getting calls at two, three, four in the morning. And yeah. Robin's saying like, is any of the things I'm doing good? At, you know, I'm not me anymore. And, and you know, Sean is like, reporting to me then in the interview, like, yeah, Robin's on set, like not able to put a sentence together. He's not able to, when he can put a sentence together, act that sentence. So he's like kind of robotically reciting words. And it's like, it's just a really, it's a really devastating thing for a genius, right? Like a guy like Robin Williams, who was definitely smarter than me, quicker than me. Like the idea that a guy like that who loved his brain and so enjoyed being able to play lost all that ability at the end of his life is just such a different story than like oh he you know he just got bummed out one night and couldn't take it and i think for fans that's a really healing experience that this is a guy who stayed the guy you loved up until the end when a, de- a disease that would have ended in his death probably a month or two later um you know he just got off the train a little early but that that's a very different story than somebody who's like just having a bad night and didn't didn't do the work that Robin did do so well, which was going to, you know, 12 step work and and being doing exercise and talking to a therapist. And, you know, he did, he did do all that work and it doesn't give him credit, um, for that when you just kind of write him off as, as a sad clown.
0: Yeah. Um, that, that was, uh, that was a uh, one of your best interviews in the, in the movie is Sean Levy. Mm. Um, the, the, I, I love some of the, the points he was coming up with there. Like, You know, that it seemed like his it seemed like Robin Williams condition, whatever it was, was so noticeable that 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 could have easily just escaped the set. You know, people could have been starting whispering and everything. And he said it's a testament to the crew that was on that, that, you know, 400 people or so kept their mouth shut about it.
1: Yeah, right. Hollywood has some practice at keeping secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's for it's for better reasons than this guy was like medically had an issue but you know like if somebody's like you know having some sort of uh affair or you know like like hollywood it's like you do not speak about stuff off set and i actually i talked um off the record with his um body double who who reported similar things to what sean was saying but he was like i i can't break this silence like you got to talk to sean if sean breaks the silence mm-hmm. then like then it's all good but like I don't want to be the guy known as, you know, coming out from behind all that. And so like, there is a little bit of like a code on a Hollywood set that like, however crazy it gets, if the guy at the top of the, at the top of the call sheet, you know, Robin Williams is of the world. If that guy has problems, you never say anything. And the yeah. thing that's really powerful is that Sean did say something and David E. Kelly did say something. Um, and it was a big deal for them to do that, right? Like Sean says, I feel like it's more loyal to share than to keep this secret in the film. And I, I thought that was a really important point.
2: Yeah. How did you get these uh connections, by the way? You know, David E. Kelly is a TV legend at this yeah. point, and Sean Levy has certainly uh, had his fair share of of huge Hollywood hits. Uh I'm I'm sure you're a connected guy. You know, not in the whole <laughs> connected guy, connected guy, but like yeah. a Hollywood connected guy. But like how do you how do you get these Quote unquote, kind of like big uh, names to come and talk about this, this kind of thing, their experience towards the end of uh, Robin's life.
1: Well, I hope you've got some filmmakers that watch your show or some aspiring ones because the, the, the advice is uh, I don't have any connections. We wrote numerous <laughs> letters to all sorts of people. It really, this is the thing that was powerful to me, right? Like you get into this point as a filmmaker where you start thinking, maybe I can sell this, right? Like maybe I can spin this. Maybe I can talk about this in the right way and I can convince someone. The only thing that has ever worked for me in my life to get somebody to do something for me in terms of film is to write a script or make a movie. Right. So it's like once we had this movie cut in a a way that didn't include Sean Levy, but he could clearly see what what part of the story he would be able to add to. That's when he got involved. That's when David
3: Ah, oh, nobody
1: responded to a slick letter. Nobody responded to a call from a friend. They all were like, if I'm going to break the silence that you don't break in Hollywood, you need to show me exactly how I fit into this movie. And if I feel like it's right and I feel like I'll be supported, then I'll step across the line but it was, it was was a dialogue that way. It wasn't, it wasn't anything fancy.
0: Were there, were there some interviews that you wanted to get that you couldn't?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's people. So, so again, like, you know, like Barrett was saying, it's like, there's so many people who don't know about this disease, right? Like who don't understand it. And, and like I said, just even comedians who, who theoretically would be like the most important audience to understand this. Most of them didn't understand it. Yeah. Um, so I feel like one of the things that we ran into was just people who you could give them the description and they would go, yeah, but I'm still not going to break like this silence in Hollywood and come out. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's totally fine. Because, you know, one of the things that I think the film does really well is talk about neurological disease in general and the way that we think about it, which is like we kind of don't want to deal with it. Right. Like we don't want to we don't want to think about someone having the, this loss of themselves, this idea of being outside yourself. And are you still in there? Right. Like that's a hard thing for us to deal with cancer. We go, oh, like, you know, I see you. I'm with you heart disease. I see you. I'm with you. Right. But like neurological stuff, we start, we start taking steps backwards because there's all this shame that's involved and there's all this terror about could this happen to us? And, and so I I completely understand anyone who was interested in being a part of the film, but just couldn't get across that line because of of that issue.
0: That's an interesting uh, aspect, though. Once you know what the causes of, of uh, you know, Robin Williams becoming sick, uh once once you realize that it seems like the the veil has has come off at that point and i guess it's difficult just to talk about the things you observed um in that way i guess um because you 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 feel like you're putting that person down in some way but i don't know i, I feel like once once you tell them hey this is about louis body dementia then people you know would be more eager to do it, but I guess you know. I mean, it's still, it's still, like you said, it's still there's still a thing, there's still a stigma. Uh, yeah, at that so point. Much. Um, yeah,
1: so much of people kind of going like, yeah, but it could have still been de- like depression, right? And you go, man, like the, <laughs> you know, like like the idea that you can give someone the idea. So the, here's a couple like bullet points that theoretically would would move somebody across a line. So you you say, okay, doctors who looked at Robin's brain saw more damage to his brain than they've ever seen for the most part. Like the guy who did the autopsy, the doctor Bruce Miller in our film spoke directly to that person at the UCSF medical hospital. So the the doctor who did the autopsy was like, this was the most damage I've ever seen to a human brain, especially as it relates to Lewy body dementia and that the person was still walking and talking. Oh wow. So you go, mm. Okay. Mm. That seems like a different story than just maybe he was depressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, then, Absolutely. Then you, yeah. And then you can start walking down other things, but it's just the idea that like, You know, I just I think it really goes to like us as a as a society and how we think about these things. And in a lot of ways, what's interesting is this film is going to have an international reach. You know, some of the organizations we partner with, like the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the American Brain Foundation, Louis Body Dementia Association, um, you know, the list goes on. But the idea that those organizations are like, you know, we feel like we've got a lot to talk about still as far as mental health and, and neurological disease patients, just how much they suffer from just shame and and being distanced from their from their loved ones. But imagine when you go to when you go to like Pan-Asian countries, there's even less of an understanding. Right. Mm-hmm. Like so the mm-hmm. idea that, that, that this film can do a little bit of work to bring some compassion and kindness to the world around people who are suffering from any kind of dementia, any kind of Alzheimer's. Um, I think that's very in line with what Robin Williams was all about. And so that's something that we worked really hard on this film to be a part of.
3: Yeah, that was, that was chilling when the doctor made that comment that, you know, he shouldn't have been walking. Um, did he act, I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of where it stopped in the documentary, but did he even volunteer any theories as to how he was even still walking and I mean, still functioning?
1: Well, what's crazy, right? So, as you're asking that question, it's not natural, but I have a smile on my face because it's like the amazing thing is that this was Robin F. Williams. Yeah. You know, so the way the doctor explained it to me was like, okay, imagine, you know, multiple sclerosis, right? It like wears down your muscles. Imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger in the early 90s gets MS. Well, he's going to last a lot longer with it than me or you, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Robin Williams, he gets this thing that wears down his brain he he's going to last way longer than any of us would have lasted because his brain is like just on, on fire. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Fair fair point.
1: Right. So like, it's, it's like tragic that like his superpower was the thing that was attacked, but it's also Mm -hmm. the reason that he lasted as long as he did, because this thing was like, you know, to a normal human being, to a, to a mortal man, this would have, this would have, ended much sooner, but because it was Robin Williams, he was able to carry it. Right. And you hear people in the film, like John Montgomery on the set of the crazy ones being like, you know, somehow even in, even in the midst of all this, he'd find a way to like snap in and and be that guy, you know, just for, just for moments that we needed him to be. And then he'd go back to like, you know, sort of all the other stuff, but the idea that he could muscle that, that he wanted to do that, that he pushed himself and gave. And like, I just, for me, that it's just such an inspiring thing, right? Like the idea that this Mm -hmm. dude, a deadly incurable neurological disease. And he held out to the end. He never got bitter. He never got angry. He never turned on the people he loved. He just stayed Robin Williams, the guy we all care about. Um, I just I, I think that not only turns the narrative, but it flips it to where it's like it's a story about somebody you you want to root for. And that when it's like a family member, when it's somebody who's there your whole life, you, I, I don't know, I get I get really I get really excited that that's that that's who he really was.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, it seems almost just like sheer will was just pushing yeah. him forward, and that's uh, that's that's unreal. That's that's very impressive.
1: That's how the guy was though, because he yeah. was the guy. His his roommate in college, Stanley Wilson's, like, you know, Robin. Uh, <laughs> he would do like twenty mile runs every morning. I mean, like, he was like this. Really? He was one of these guys who like he pushed himself right, like bike rides eighty eighty miles. You know, around here in Marin, like that. He had that intensity about him. That, that was one of the reasons that, that like drugs, you know, my it's weird. So this is all Bay Area stuff. But my dad um, actually saw Robin Williams like in the early 80s, like hanging out at this place called uh, the Holy City Zoo, which was like, you know, Ellen DeGeneres got her start there and all these people that it's a defunct comedy club like that was out in the Richmond here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But um, you know that she, he reported seeing Robin Williams like on cocaine, just like playing playing pinball in the eighties, right? Like that was actually how, <laughs> how Robin would calm down with his cocaine. And like the idea that like that that guy with that immense energy and, and and like willpower was able to like use that and and form that in a way that benefited all our lives, and then in his own life, like really stayed stayed with it for way way longer than anybody else could have hoped to.
2: Well, you make a beautiful point. In the documentary, I forget the the neuroscientist that said it, but about neuroplasticity. In that, yes, if if the brain is blocked in some way by these alpha synuclein or Lewy bodies, they can find a way around it. There's a the rerouting of circuitry, and if you have, you explained it perfectly there. If you have the ability, which he did to. <laughs> It's, it's an apples to oranges comparison, but to improv, essentially, right? Your brain is improving a new connection, uh, yeah. a, a, a new route uh, for these, uh, these neurons to take and uh, f- found some way to do this. And you have to believe that his talent as a performer, his brain uh, as a comedian, uh, as an, uh, a performer overall had to play a role in that, uh, you know, super neuroplasticity. Uh, and, and it, it just m- must have been like a tornado of cognitive activity happening in that brain, uh, prior to the end of his life.
1: I really love that Barrett. So the way, so, so the thing that got me really excited about what you just said is the idea of this battle, right? So the way that they used to treat Parkinson's when it, when they first were understanding what it was, is they'd actually go into your brain, isolate where the Parkinson's was and cut it out, right? Like, and then, you know, and then the Parkinson's would find ways To kind of get back and and they could never get it all the way out. But it was this that was their best treatment in the early days was actually cutting it out of your brain. But it would it would find a way as your brain was healing, it would find a way around and and get back in and start again. And then they'd have to cut that out. And so the idea with Robin is the idea that like the Lewy body dementia was like trying to take away parts of him. Right. Like cutting these little places out of his brain, like because they turn off that functionality here and they turn it off over here. But that Robin's like resilience and his and his neuroplasticity was fighting just as fa- as hard to like rebuild those connections and remake them. And yet like that was really happening for him for the last year and a half of his life. And and the idea that he lasted that long was because his ability to hold up his ability to fight that and re remake new pathways in his brain was so strong. Um, mm-hmm. That's a cool imagery for me. Like, you just put that in my head. That's great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the One of the, uh, the great uh, lines you have captured in this is, a doctor saying that there is no difference between your typical mental health issue and your uh and the disease uh you know the the brains of the disease that the disease of the brain that we uh we you know we like you know parkinsons and Lewy body and all this that is something i had never heard before i don't think um and and i'm glad that this was somehow captured in here because it's i'm glad that somebody is making no
1: distinction whatsoever and saying these are all the same thing that's a great point okay so this is this this is a awesome podcast point right we're we're 30 minutes in and now we're hitting (laughs) on like fragile humanity right the concept to me that this film really gets it at the core of it it's that we're all fragile that this could have happened to any of us and that we have these scientists in the film kind of shockingly to me as i'm sitting there realizing it and like like you like, because you we're just these computers, right? And we're trying to process in- incoming information and then spit out things to like maybe adjust the world in the way we'd like it to be. And so so the scientist is telling me, yeah, you know, basically it's all brain circuitry. So, like, you know, if you if you stub your toe and it hurts, or if your brain stops working, or if your heart palpitates in the wrong way, that's all just brain circuitry. Though all those things mm-hmm. are managed, like everything that we refer to as us is just connections in the brain. And you start and you start going, Oh my gosh, like wait, where am I in my head? And then, and like, where is the seat of my consciousness? And you get into this kind of thing of like, it's so fragile. It's just a lump of jello is that's everything that you are. Mm -hmm. And that like anything can happen to it, especially something like Lewy body dementia, which affects 1.4 million people a year. And those are the ones that got diagnosed. It's probably a much higher number than that. So the idea that like just the fragility of humanity and the idea that as we all walk this sort of tightrope of just existing, that like Robin was doing it at the level he was doing it at um, but was just as susceptible, was just as human as all of us. That would, that was something that, I mean, I, I still kind of can sit back and go, man, like, wow, like, you know, just how easily it would be for us all to, mm-hmm. to fall the same way because we don't have any special, you know, armor. We don't have any special like defense against like whatever it's like, we're just, we're just hunks of, you know, meat that are trying to, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's really like when a doctor breaks it down that way, you, you can't really refute it. And you're like, Oh my God. Like, I yeah. don't like to think about it, but it's true.
2: Some of us are hunkier than others. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, some hunks of beef. From, hunky. <laughs> a, um,
0: a, a, a quiet, uh, well, I guess he's not quiet, but uh, it seems like an unassuming hero of this movie is Susan Schneider, mm. uh, who, uh, you know, it was, I think it's a testament to what kind of relationship is portrayed uh, in this. I, I just, I I had forgotten that Robin Williams had two other marriages before this. Mm. Uh, It it felt like they had been together uh, from the start. That's how, that's how it looked uh, on, on this, uh, on this thing. And, and, and it seems like now that you, now that I've seen this this movie, uh, that they met in an Apple store doesn't even seem all that crazy, uh, at, at all. I thought that was a great story of how they met and how they talked to each other. And she went right up to him and talked to him. And, uh, but, uh, she, she looks like she's all in and ready to go, but obviously, you know, there is one moment where she's a, she, she nearly breaks down, but uh, how how was it for her? Was she able to? Was she just she? Did she look like the soldier uh, that she is in this, or did she ha- she have to stop you a couple times?
1: Man, that's an understatement. So so when we started this film, Susan wanted nothing to do with being with telling these stories. So when she mm. when you referenced earlier that she went out in the media, she was she was doing very much like the first lady thing, where she's like, you know, my husband had this thing, and it's very traumatic, and it's called Lewy body dementia, and we'd like you all to respect that, and mm. and it was like. She wasn't giving any detail of what they went through because she wasn't even telling that to her friends and so about two years after robin passes when we started doing interviews and she was telling me things almost in a therapy like there was things where i would ask her and i was like oh susan i don't know if you should have told me that like like, yeah. you know, like it was like it was like like she was really just being an open book she was completely being vulnerable and like It was just a. It was a really powerful exercise in a woman saying, "I love my husband more than life itself. Like I was going to marry him. I married him, and I wanted to be with him until the end of our days. And I know that if this would have happened to me, he would be fighting just as hard for my memory and for my Mm -hmm. legacy. And like people understood, and the idea that that was her only driver through this whole process. And it actually even superseded self-preservation, right? Like she was talking about stuff that she wasn't ready to talk about and she would completely burst into tears and we'd have to stop for a half hour because I mean like, you know, and here's the crazy thing. Those interviews that are in the film were shot in their house. Mm -hmm. So we're in the house and I mean, just like I, as a filmmaker, you're trying to like hold the room and like give the interviewee complete support as they go through this very difficult retelling. But like, I mean, I, I definitely, it hit me the significance and the weight of what we were doing a few times in terms of like, this is a lot, this is a lot of grief that hasn't been processed yet. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, we're six years out now. She's, she's processed a lot of that. And she's really come to a place where, you know, she's, she's gotten herself back. But those early days when we were doing those interviews that are in the film, like, it, it was a woman who was very raw and it took a lot of editing to make sure that we, we showed her in the right light because you know, it, it was heavy. It was definitely heavy.
0: How much in this documentary did you learn that you didn't know going in?
1: Oh my God. Uh, I almost didn't know anything that's in the film before I started. Right. Like I came to it, you know, I didn't know. I didn't, I it just, yeah, nothing. I, I will mm. say like almost, almost without, um, hyperbole i knew almost nothing about the things that were in this movie before and
0: I, I feel started. like that's a, a better documentary just just uh, as an editorial yeah. comment it's better yeah. for you not to know going in so that you don't have any biases going in
1: no none i mean it was like I, again like the only thing that i kept chasing and that became clear to me at one point was that if if Robin Williams could have gotten a diagnosis for this thing, right? He was always going to be on this train. There's no cure. There's no, there's no treatment. There's nothing you're going to do. That's going to change the outcome of being a death sentence. But if this guy gets a diagnosis, it changes everything and everything I learned about him, how resilient he was, how strong of a human being he was, how kind he was. I feel like he could have done all those things for himself, been kind to himself, been resilient, and and come to a place where of acceptance of of understanding that this wasn't his fault right that's the thing that i think you know when when someone like sean levy or david e kelly are reporting in the film like those guys they were very happy to get this off their chest on some level right they they weren't just going to tell anybody but in the right setting you know we have 17 people who came forward with these stories in the film in that setting where they're where they're protected and and they're they're part of a group and they're saying something like they were very happy to get this off their chest because you know sean levy was saying, you know, Robin saying, you know, I'm not me anymore. I, I don't know what's happening. And Sean's trying to be like, oh, you are still you. And, you know, he's on a film set trying to help his actor get mm-hmm. back to the center. And he doesn't know that this is a neurological disease. And so he's trying to push Robin to like, you're Robin effing Williams, man. Like, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're the best. Like, you're, you know, you're great. And but like, he doesn't believe it. Right. Like, and so they're all in this trauma together. And same thing with, you know, David E. Kelly. They were shooting a scene for the crazy ones and they end up in this kind of like they're in a church filming the scene in our actual church, which is like, you couldn't, you couldn't be great, like of a weirder setting, but they're actually in a church. And then they go into sort of like the area where the priest kind of hangs out so that Robin can relax while they're setting up the next shot. And him and David E. Kelly are sitting there who raised kids together, right? Like these guys have known each other for a long time and, and Robin's breaking down and David E. Kelly has to sit with him and, and walk him through it and talk about it and hold that space. And, you know, David E. Kelly and Sean Levy and the other people in this film all sort of suffered with that alone in a way. And so the idea that they could bring that forward in this film and share that and have it be towards something positive that sets the record straight and gives Robin's legacy, you know, that little bit of shine that it deserves of, of like whatever you thought before wasn't true. Um, I really think that was a healing experience, not only for Susan, but just all 17 of the people who were able to come forward and not have to hold these secrets anymore.
2: You, you made a very good distinction between the the psychiatric manifestations of this disorder versus the neurological Mm. manifestations. The psychiatric is exactly what you're saying, that it's not only frustrating to, you know, the people around uh, who have to deal with the, the effects of this, whether, you know, he's, he's breaking down or he's, he's kind of losing it and that kind of thing. But to him, uh, to Robin Williams himself, you know, the the, the cognitive impairment, uh, certainly the visual hallucinations, the affective depression, anxiety stuff. Uh, you mentioned early on in the documentary about him going to the comedy club uh, in the neighborhood. And then he at one point, he just said, I can't do this anymore. There's too much chaos going on backstage. There's too much anxiety around there. Those had to be doubly frustrating. Uh, if you've ever dealt, dealt with anxiety, it's hard enough on its own. But then that impedes your career or your, your, what you love doing. It's, it's the the worst part. And, and as you said, the, the, L, the, the Louis body dementia works in the inverse way of the Parkinson's where these psychiatric manifestations go first. And so you're just kind of like in this, uh, this loop where you're questioning reality and you're questioning, uh, why you can't do what you used to be able to do. And then you've got, you know, the, 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 the affectations of uh, the, the, the cast and crew around you. It, it absolutely is portrayed in the perfect way in this documentary. I'm not blowing smoke here, uh, <laughs> but, but the way that you sequentially put this together made a lot of sense, both in layman's terms and sci- uh, scientific terms and in humanistic terms. You see how this guy went to where, from where he was to where he ended up.
1: That's huge. I mean, thank you for all of that. There's a lot to pull from there. But yeah, I mean, essentially that, yeah, just getting that, getting that mix right, getting that balance right was really, really important. And that was that thing I was saying where I really had to put on my filmmaker and my journalist hat, right? Because I couldn't get too experimental into just like the the feeling, the emotion of Rob Wobber was going through, because then you lose track of the science and the sort of grounding facts of his mm. case. And so you have to kind of always be jumping between those two hoops of like okay like we need to get some more science in or you know like hey but let's not lose robin and then we have to, okay know, it's like so finding that way of of just balancing everything so that we felt like it it had just the perfect amount of energy um that was yeah that was very difficult and it took some time um, but we had a great editor on this one scott fitzloff um, who was really really helpful to me in terms of helping with crafting some of those those pieces so um, but yeah, it was definitely a filmmaking journey and it was the biggest ask I think I've had of my filmmaking career in terms of how much was on the line. Right. You get it wrong. <laughs> if you, I can't even go about like what, what the amount of anxiety I was going through was if I got this wrong, right? Like, sure. it,
2: slum, yeah, it's a personal you know? story and it's a, it's a very tight, it's a tight rope.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's like Susan, his widow is like bearing her soul to me and it's like, oh yeah, go ahead and screw that up. See how that goes. Like, yeah.
2: You know? okay. <laughs> God. did you shoot this Tyler?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I shot it as well
2: so you're you're uh it, it looked like I, I don't want to say by trade, but it looked like you have a, a background in cinematography, and I, I just wanted to point out that despite this being uh, you know what what people think of as a documentary, just the the interview subject and everything this the film looks beautiful, especially <laughs> the aerial shots that you got uh the the wider shots. Uh, you really give a sense of place of that community, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was actually really important. We started realizing that like, you know, part of getting to know Robin was this idea. This was actually, this is actually a fun thing. Thank you for bringing that up here. So (laughs) really fun thing about this guy that as I was learning, right, knowing nothing about Robin Williams. So if you tell me to imagine what Jim Carrey's house looks like or Eddie Murphy's house, I'm imagining a mansion with an eight foot tall fence and guard dogs and a guy, in <laughs> you know, with a, with a nine millimeter. And the idea that Robin Williams lived in like the suburbs was yeah. <laughs> what? And like his neighbors are like, oh yeah, he just walked the dog and he play with our kids. And like one of the guys was like, at one point I had to tell him to stop playing with my kids because they were they were like getting dirty, like they were rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> and, like, you have to go out into your front lawn and tell Robin Williams to stop playing with your kids because everybody's like getting too dirty. Like it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> like you couldn't make that stuff up and like the the guy john hepper is like oh yeah he'd like you know he'd be biking around the neighborhood and he'd come stop by and we'd have coffee and like talk about like and this guy john hepper was an ex-cIA guy would you like of course robin who loved the military was like all about that And so i mean he was just robin was connected to his community and like he was really a part of this thing that that is whatever marin is right like whatever whatever this special place he decided to be a part of was it felt like it was very important to think about because i was like It just blew my every time I go over to Susan's house, like Susan Robin's house, every time I'd go over there to do an interview or or pick up some B-roll or whatever I was doing, I was like, it was like you're driving in the suburbs. You pull up, you like you put like, you know, she buzzes you in. There's like a tiny little gate, right, that like anybody could surmount. Luckily, she doesn't live there anymore just for any super fans out there. Um, (laughs) but But the idea that like, you know, this was not a guy who had a security system that would be at any in any level like, you know. Commensurate to how big of a star this guy was, like if, if if like, it was just amazing to me that his humanity, his his ability to just be a guy was like, so, so important to him. And it was and reflected again, like in all the work that he did with the homeless, like, um, it's not in the film, but, uh, David E. Kelly, when they're talking about whether Robin is even going to do this show, the crazy ones, which is the last show he ever does. David E. Kelly's like, you know, we're going to meet at some fancy restaurant or whatever in, in San Francisco. Cause it's like a big Hollywood meeting, right? It's David E. Kelly and Robin Williams meeting for lunch to talk about a project. He pulls up in his car. Robin Williams is just sitting on the curb, like hanging out. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, he's sitting On the curb, like in somewhere in San Francisco, and he's not getting mobbed. Like, it's just the idea that that was that was who Robin really was, right? He was like this really cool guy that he stayed really good friends with a lot of like kind of the knock around guy comedians who never really blew up like he was just as close with them as he was with like the big guy, like, you know, the guys who would be household names. And so the idea that like, just the, I, I really, I, it, it taught me a lot about how to be better in general, just, just getting to know really who Robin was. It taught me a lot about how to be better. So now like I make sure I always have a little bit of cash on me to give to homeless people, which I never did before, but it was like, it's just like if that guy could be that famous and that busy and he found time for all these things, like that was, that was powerful.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, I don't think I ever f- thought of Robin Williams as the kind of celebrity that would big time you anyway, but like, I think that's the thing about this that is just, I mean, it just looks like how, you know, he's just such a normal dude and well, normal dude, but extraordinary uh, as far as giving a, giving of his time and everything. I'm um, I, I just, I think that's sort of why um, when he, when it, when he was, when the news of his death came out, there were so many people who were like, that, that that really impacted them uh you know like it was easy for a while there during during the uh, during that era because robin williams wasn't coming out with the best of movies and the best of uh, things and it was easy to kind of bag on him uh because he wasn't in those in in the stuff that that kind of made him famous and everything and um, but but it everybody just shut that up once he died. It wasn't there wasn't anything like extra to the whole thing. I, I mm. it, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, you know, that I, I believe everybody sort of in their heart knew what kind of man that man he was, uh, even if they didn't really realize it, they knew he'd gone to do USO shows. They yeah. knew he had done all of this type of stuff, but they probably didn't know everything like this documentary shows, but just knowing that kind of thing, that's what I think tied into why so many people just went immediately to, I've always loved Robin Williams and everything he ever does.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was just that thing though. Of like, so the other thing that, that like Susan and I talked about as we were trying to figure out even like, I was basically trying to get from her like all these angles and I was trying to feel about which one maybe an audience would resonate with most. And she was just kind of telling me like a hundred facts. Right. And one of the things that like, you know, Robin, he, and this is the crazy thing, right? Like, of course, Robin Williams has like 50 people who work for him. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, he's, he's like, he, in, in part of his kindness and part of his like, sort of, you know, just way he was like, well, I got to keep working. Cause I got all these people who like, you know, if I don't work, they don't work. And so yeah. I mean, I, I kind of that that was something where I was like, okay, so that's why he made the RV movie. Got it,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, that had JoJo in it. <laughs>
2: that's right.
1: That's right.
3: That was Barry Sonnenfeld too? Wasn't it? I think. I'm sure. Uh, I mean, yeah. he,
1: didn't, he didn't work with untalented people, but it was just, you know like, some of the things he did for money. And like, I think he was pretty candid about that, even in doing the PR for those movies. He was like, yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> um that now this might this might have been out of necessity and everything but you know I I think a lot of people might expect when they when they watch this to have you know one of those things that documentaries always do where there's a montage of his greatest hits you know it's Mork and Mindy it's Mrs Doubtfire it's Good Morning Vietnam Dead poet Society so on and so forth um and now you may have not been able to get the footage but I do think that it services this documentary pretty well that you didn't, even if you may have tried uh, Mm -hmm. because uh, it, it feels more about his human side than, than the uh, acting and everything else. I think the movie sort of uh, trusts that you've seen all of these things and that you Mm -hmm. don't need a, a hit list, but that said, did you try to? to did you want to uh, get more movie footage in there? You have a lot of behind the scenes stuff in here, and you have a Dead Poet Society clip. Uh, yeah. But did you want more?
1: You know what? Like, it, I really didn't, and that's the crazy thing. Because I I gotta say, if you don't know who Robin Williams is, this isn't a movie for you. Like, and it's like it hates you hate to be cute <laughs> yeah. and awful, but like, and like if you have if you're not hip, like I can't. I can't educate you about who Robin was if you didn't see any movies beforehand. Like, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll make a little packet of like, please watch like these 12 movies and then watch our documentary. Um, But like, no, it's like, you know, we really biased towards, so here's my big guiding light, right? It was like one, if this guy would have had a diagnosis, everything changes. Nobody has this conflicted feeling about Robin and everybody understands that this guy was a hero, right? That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two is the idea that like, Robin Williams, the guy who made all this work, like the guy who was in all these movies that that I really wanted to get to Robin, like this guy, Robin, and, and, and he was very hard to pin down like he, he rarely shows up in interviews. He's always being Robin Williams, which is a gift to us. But it's like trying to find Robin. Um, And that was the reason that that we showed the dead poet thing is because the dead poet clip isn't about the movie. It's actually about the idea that he snuck a line in there to one Mm -hmm. of his college friends, like his college best, his best friend since college, Stanley Mm -hmm. Wilson. Sneaks a line in there to reference his buddy, and I just thought that was just like, what a beautiful guy! Like he's just like looking for like little things, and as they're at the big premiere and all the heads of Disney are around or whatever, like Robin's like giggling because he knows this moment's going to come up where his buddy's going to catch that he gave him a shout out in like this <laughs> incredible film, and then like and then you know his friend is sitting there being like, and tears are coming down my face. You know he's he's responding like it, like the idea that like. Robin just did little things like that for his friends that he loved. And, and then we do have a big thing from behind the scenes at the genie because Stanley Wilson was also there for the Aladdin recordings. Mm -hmm. And like, that was just foundationally. I mean, that was the one, that was the one, like, let's just give, let's just give Robin Williams a second here because I had no clue that like he came up with all that stuff. Like he was sitting there for two nine hour days, just going like off the top of his head. And then he go, no, no, hold on. I got, I got a better idea. Let me do it again. Uh, okay. Let me try that one more time. And like in the director and the people in the booth are just like, they're just watching the levels, you know, like they're letting, they're letting Robin do whatever he does. And like, and at the end of it, we get the genie, right. Which is like one of the great characters in cinema history. And, you know, Robin Williams just created that. And like Mm -hmm. that for me was one of those things where if you want to understand that this guy was a genius, like look no further.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool to see. That almost made me more irritated that, uh, you know, Disney tried to screw him uh, so badly uh, out of getting paid for that performance.
1: All these like rules and they kind of broke the rules, but then they gave him like a Picasso, which I thought was just like, is is that what's happening? Like people are just kidding.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I knew about the Picasso. That's crazy. I didn't hear that either. Oh my gosh. Um, I love that you guys included the, the, uh, the, the troop stuff though. The, one of the best moments in there was when, uh, I guess the, the soldier that, uh, had just literally lost his girlfriend because she was, you know, just too freaked out by the whole situation. And just the idea that Robin would go in there and, you know, share his own stuff and his own fears, um, to try to, you know, try to help these people as best he could, uh, was just unreal. Uh, I, you know, I don't, you know, I just, like you said, you know, it's just crazy to think about if you, you know, somebody as busy as Helm and somebody who had as much going on as he did, and he made time for things like that. And, you know, uh, we complain about the silliest things, you know, <laughs> that we don't have time for. So well, it
2: sounds like he would have made an excellent therapist to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not to, not to like subvert the goodwill hunting stereotype, but like, you know, I mean, if somebody talks to you about your fear, and I guess this is informative of the the title, right? The Robin's Wish is about yes. um, not having any fear uh, and breaking it down to that level, which is such a comforting thought, right? It's it, goes it, it just takes I think, away I
1: think everything goes further than that, because what he says is is to like kind of act in spite of fear, right? Like there's a great quote about that being sort of the definition of bravery is not the lack of fear, but actually to act in spite of fear. Um, I think that was something that he really lived. And I, I think you're referencing that. So, um, yeah, that was a great thing, Jonathan. One, one of the things it brings to mind is this idea that, you know, Susan in in going through these really difficult interviews was looking for some way to reconnect with her husband after we'd be done filming. And like, and so she would just sort of like kind of think about him or look at some little thing in the house that was theirs that like would bring her happiness. And they had so many cute little things that were just them. Like they had little like Robin collected action figures. Cause of course he's just like this big kid. And like one of the things he had was these custom done, like battle robots that had like spray painted across the chest of each of them, like Robin and the other one had Susan. And they were like, you know, like kind of in this like, glass dome. And you were just like, what? Is this guy? Like, this is the weirdest dude. But um, <laughs> after one of these times that we did one of these interviews, Susan was looking for some way to connect with Robin. And she was like, you know, I haven't been to it. She tells me later, she's like, you know, I hadn't gone into his bedside table before. And, you know, after this interview, she was like, I just needed something. And so she went to his bedside table for the first time, and very private space, right? And yeah. she opens uh, this book that was there, which was his AA book, his 12 step book, um, which was a hugely important book to him, because his sobriety was one of the mm-hmm. things I would see that was maybe his most like it was incredibly important to him being able to be there for all of us. And he took it very, very seriously. Um So in that book, she's like, oh, well, maybe I'll find something scribbled in the margins, like a funny little quote or like whatever, like just something that's him right in his handwriting. So so she opens the book, the first blank page that's in every book, this big blank page he's written in big letters. I just want to help people be less afraid. And he signs it. Or he dates it. And it's like. For me. As a fan, it gets to this place of like, that's who this guy was, right? Mm-hmm. This, that, that, we, we photograph that, um, that book in the film to share it with the world, which is fantastic. But it's like, this was a thing Robin never intended anyone to read. It was in his bedside table and it was in a book that he was never going to give to anyone, right? And the idea that it was just his little prayer at night one night. the to the universe that like I want to be present i want to show up for people and I want to help people be less afraid it's like I mean you couldn't ask for more from a hero right to know that that's who their truest self is that that's who they are in the darkest night when they're when they're sort of just thinking about what they want to do for everything and for me then all of a sudden as a fan you go well maybe that's what he was always doing right then you can say okay he wrote that in 2012 but don't you think he was doing that with like you know Goodwill hunting. And don't you think he was doing that with Aladdin? And don't you think he was doing that with like, you know, and so in that way, it's just such a beautiful way to understand this guy who, you know, changed the world for the better. Right. And it's like, I just, I'm so excited for people to get really into that part of it and hopefully watch this film. And as soon as the credits start running, like run out and, and turn on their favorite Robin film, right. Turn on Mrs. Doubtfire, turn on whatever. Cause like, you know he left us with all these beautiful experiences and ways that his that that message of being a little less afraid can live on um and so that's something that I really hope the film unlocks a little bit,
0: yeah, I think so. I think uh even you know it's not like I was walking around saying, I need some closure about this Robin Williams uh death, but like this this documentary uh was 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 healing in some way i don't know why uh you know it just it it felt good to to uh be able to hear the truth and all these people talk about it in such a candid way and um I, yeah i hope or hope a lot of people are are gonna go watch this too we'd like to thank uh tyler norwood for uh giving us his time movies robin's wish it comes out on September first, which is a Tuesday. Is that uh, going to be in theaters, or is it uh, is it uh, all VOD and uh, if digital? You know about
1: theaters that are open right now. You let me know.
0: <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we, we have a few that are that are opening uh, have have opened, uh, but uh, I didn't know we've i've i've run we've run the gamut with the interviews where people said, well, yeah, it'll be in some drive-ins and stuff like that. So, uh, oh, that's but
1: a good, I'll go look for drive-ins
0: yeah <laughs> so but uh yeah september 1st is when robin's wish uh comes out and uh but uh that's going to do it for this interview it's uh, chris atkinson barrett share and jonathan watkins we'll see you next time
2: thanks for listening comment on our episodes on our soundcloud page check us out on youtube twitter facebook and reddit and be sure to visit cinemasense.com.
0: All right guys, you know what? You want to join the sin club? This is this is how you do this. You need to get on Patreon and go to patreoncom Sins because you can get stuff early. You can get uh you know, you can get videos early, you can get podcasts early. There's even some tiers where you can get a bonus video that nobody else gets to see. There's uh, two bonus podcasts uh like recently, what did we do? We did uh, Overlord for a, for a sins video uh we did a couple of podcasts question was uh asked what movie from your childhood could you not watch again uh so on and so forth on cinema sins we uh answered questions that uh had been lingering and we went ahead and a- asked uh, answered those and everything so get on get on our patreon and take a look at the tiers and see what's what's uh what's best for you these are just sort of our thank you to uh all of our members and everything that we're we're uh, giving this extra content and um there's even stuff like uh you can choose uh, podcast topics you can uh, get discounts on merch uh we give you some handwritten notes there's uh uh, there's some uh, discounts on fan events uh there's all sorts of little things that you can you can get into uh uh, from membership so so go to patreon.com slash cinemasins and check it out